If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Let me say, uh, the title of our lesson this morning is, The Greatest of These is Love. The Greatest of These is Love. And let me say, first of all, I want to thank Chuck uh, for filling in for me last week. I wasn't here, obviously, and um, he, he filled in, and I told him, when he started, I said, he said, well, do you want me to cover all the verses? Do you want me to cover four verses? What do you want me to cover? And I said, just do whatever you want to do. And he covered the whole thing, and, and he did an excellent job. In fact, he did such a good job that uh, when I first listened to him on the podcast, so I listened to his lesson a couple times, that I thought, well, I'll just skip, I'll just move on, because he really covered everything that there was to cover uh, in, the, in the chapter. But uh, obviously, last uh, last was it last Tuesday was the election. I, I forget now when it was. It's all kind of kind of running by. But something about the election changed my mind. Um, I've been uh, uh, I, I don't watch much TV or much TV news anymore. I, I pretty much get all my news off the off the iPhone, and I, I've got all these news apps. And that, and I've been following the election before. It all started, and, I, and after it was over, I was following everything that's going on. And I realized something about 1 Corinthians 13, is that, as Chuck did a really good job of talking about, the message of this chapter is the preeminence of love, is it not? That's the, the message of this chapter, that love should always be preeminent. Love should always be our focus. Love should always take priority. And I, I'm telling you, this chapter is so timely for, for, this, for, for, for this time that we are at right now in our country and in our world. And I'll explain that here in just a little bit. I want to start out this morning and just remind ourselves, why is love so important? As I said, the, the focus of this chapter is the, is the preeminence of love, the, the priority of love in our lives. Well, why? Why is love so important? I want to give you seven reasons why love is so important in, in the Bible. Number one, the Bible tells us that God himself is love. Uh, 1 John 4, 8 says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now that is a massive claim. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You know, everybody said, even people that are unbelievers know that scripture, right? They'll say, God is love. Well, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to say, not just that God loves, but that God is love? What, what does that, that mean? And, and it's a, by the way, it's a huge thing to say, and it would take us, we could probably spend two or three weeks on it if we wanted to, but we don't have time this morning. But in a word, I think this is what it means. God by nature, overflows. God, see, we, it's hard for us to understand this because we have so many wants and desires and unfulfilled things in our life. But God, by nature, is a giver. He's a helper. He's a provider. He's a guider. He's a counselor. He's a protector. You see, by nature, He is so complete. He is so full. In other words, He has need of nothing. Everybody got that? We, it's hard for us to understand because we, we all need something. But God needs absolutely nothing. He is, he is perfectly full, perfectly content 
in who He is and what He is. Therefore, by nature, all that can do is just overflow out of Him. Does that, does that make sense? It just overflows out of Him because he, is, he, is, he doesn't need anything. And if we know Him, John says we will overflow in the same way that He does. In other words, we will love like Him because we will be like Him. Now, just think about that for a second. Go back to that scripture. Anybody who does not love does not know God. In other words, the, the, the flip side of that is if you know God, you will what? You will love. It's not a maybe. It's not a possibly. It's not a might. If you know God, you will love. You will uh, overflow, okay? so And the implication for this in the way that we live our lives is massive. This should affect every area of our life, in our home life, in our work life, in our social life. We should be overflowing. We should be guiding and protecting and providing and counseling and doing all the things that, that God does. Number two, love fulfills the law. Romans 13, 8 through 10 says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does, not, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The point here that Paul makes is that love between human beings is so crucial that Paul says when it happens, you are fulfilling Scripture. I mean, that is, I mean, I don't know how you can get any, any, I mean, all of these statements are just huge when you think about it. Not only is God love, but when we love, it says that's when you're obeying Scripture. That's when you're fulfilling Scripture. Whatever the else there is in the Christian life, okay, it all comes down to that. Are you doing it out of love? See, God sees a big difference. You can, you can feed the homeless without love, and you can feed the homeless with love. Everybody got that? You can do a lot of things and you're doing it out of duty. You're doing it out of what can I get out of this. You're doing it to make yourself feel better. A lot of reasons to do it. But, and, and that, and, and, but he says when you do it out of love, that's when you're fulfilling Scripture. Okay, that's when obedience is, is perfect. Number three, faith expresses itself through love. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. In other words, Paul says all that stuff doesn't count for nothing. Let me tell you what counts. There's one thing that counts is, is your faith working through love? That's the only thing that counts according to Paul. Love is the way that faith expresses itself. It's the way that faith proves itself. If works of love in our life are evidence that our faith is real. That's why James says faith without works is what? It's dead. Okay, that's the way that real faith expresses itself primarily through, through works of love. So without love, faith is dead. Without love, a church is dead. Without love, your heart is dead. I don't care what's going on. You can know more Bible than anybody else, and it doesn't matter. You can have a church that seats 10,000 people, but without love, it means nothing. That, that's what Paul is saying in this whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 John 3.14 says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Look at that scripture. Without love, you are spiritually dead. I don't care what else is happening in your life. I don't care 
how, how faithful you are to church. I don't care how much you read your Bible. I don't care if you speak in tongues. I don't care if you prophesy. I don't care if you lay hands on people and they're healed. He says if you don't love, you live in death. That means you are spiritually dead. Because if you know God, you have to love. I mean, this is just... I mean, you can just see how important this is. It's just huge inside of Scripture. Number four, love is the badge of Christianity. There are a lot of ways that people signify that they're Christians. And some of you may have a, have a fish on your car. Some of you may wear a cross around your neck. Some of you may have a, a sign in your yard. There are a lot of ways to say I'm a Christian. And I don't have a problem with, with any of those things. But if you ask Jesus, what is the mark of a Christian? What is the badge of a Christian? What is the thing in my life that shows I'm a Christian? Well, he's already answered that in John 13, 35. He said, by this, by this thing, by this act, by this, by this one thing, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That is the badge of being a Christian. That's the way we show... Again. If you want to put a fish on your car, that's fine. You want to put a, a sign in, in your yard, that's fine. You want to wear a cross around your neck, got no problem with any of that. But the badge of Christianity is love for one another. That's what shows we're Christians. We can't ever forget that. Recall why. Again, recall earlier what we said. God is so full, right? He's so content within Himself that He by nature overflows. He helps, He guides, He, he provides, He protects, He counsels. He does all those things. And if He lives inside of us, if His blood flows in our veins, guess what we're going to do? We're going to do all those same things like our Father does. We're, we're not, the apple's not going to fall far from the tree. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's why it's the badge of, of Christianity. Number five, love is the goal of instruction. Paul writes to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 5, and he says this, but the goal of our instruction, and he means our teaching, which is exactly what we're doing here this morning. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, Paul says, in all of my teaching that I'm doing, one of the end goals that I'm trying to bring everybody to is, is love. Yes, love from a pure heart. And yes, love from a sincere faith. Because, by the way, you can't have agape love without a pure heart and sincere faith. Right? That's what he's trying to bring us to. But the aim of it all, the aim of all our preaching that we do here at River of Life, the aim of all this teaching that we do, is not just to fill your mind so you know Scripture. It's not just to bring you to a point where you know theology better than the next person. The whole point of the teaching is to bring you to a point where you love, where you love the brethren. I mean, that's what Paul says. We're trying to get everybody to, to love one another. Now, those are five biblical reasons why love is so important, okay? Why love should be preeminent in our lives. But these last two reasons are going to be much more personal and much more contemporary, okay? Now, I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons I decided to stay on chapter 13 for one more week apart from moving on is because of what I've seen in the election, and all the stuff that's going on in our country right now. And there's two more reasons that love for us today is critically, critically important. 
Number six is this. Love shows another way to relate. Okay? Now let me explain what I mean by this. I I don't know how many of y'all follow social media, how many of y'all follow the news and all that kind of stuff. But if you do, one of the things you'll see right now is our country is permeated with a spirit of hate. I mean, how many agree with that right now? Just just go online. Our country is permeated right now with a spirit of hatred, a spirit of of rancor, uh, uh, mean-spiritedness. I mean, you just see it everywhere. Two people disagree. So, so last week we went to Callaway Gardens and just wanted to go up in the mountains and find some cool weather. And we went at the, at the gardens last Saturday night. <clears throat> they, had, uh, they did a Christmas walk. They, they do it once a year. They, have a, they, they light up their walkways and you go walk through it for the March of Dimes. And so we all went and was walking through this Christmas walk. And of course it's dark, you know, you just got the Christmas lights. And I was walking next to a group of teenagers and they didn't see me. I was kind of off to the side, and they were, they were right over here. And I was listening to them talk. And one of them made this statement. They said, we voted for Hillary, and all the bad people voted for Trump. See? And immediately, I just... And I'm, by the way, they're just teenagers. They're just saying what they've heard. They, they don't... I mean, they don't... You know, I didn't hold anything against them for anything that they said. But the point was that. Notice the people were bad. Not their opinions were bad. Not their beliefs were bad. None of that. The people were bad. And that's what we've come to in this country. I don't know if y'all see this right now going on, but we, we don't just vilify people's opinions. We vilify the person. They're bad people if they disagree with us. And, and it used to didn't be that way. There's something going on right now. And I, that's why I call it a spirit of hatred, a spirit of, of rancor. And you see it everywhere. We, we see it between the races. We, we see it in our families. We see it, obviously, in our politics. Every day, you look at a news app or a newspaper, and it's documenting something else where there's a spirit of hatred that's going, going on. And I think it's because the issues themselves are so volatile, issues like abortion and transgender rights and, and homosexuality, because the issues are so volatile, when people disagree on the issues, that it becomes very volatile, right? And, and as we said, and what I'm seeing in the, in the world today is our culture wars are becoming much more than just disagreements, and it's coming to a point it's looking more and more like real war. Does that make sense? I mean, it's not just disagreements anymore. I mean, people are really picking sides and, and, and just hating one, one another. Now, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised by this. Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter to him, and he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. He says, but realize this, Timothy, in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Men, now listen to some of these descriptions. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure pleasure rather than lovers of God. And when I read that description, some of the words that jumped out at me are revilers, um, ungrateful, unloving, irreconcilable. They don't want to be reconciled. 
they're right and you're wrong, you come to my side or forget, or, or forget you. They don't want to be reconciled. Malicious. Just, malicious means you just go over and aboard just to hurt somebody. You're, you're malicious. You're a hater. These words just jump out of me. And again, I can't read that without seeing how contemporary it is. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's written, you know, this New Testament, these letters are written 2,000 years ago. He could have wrote them last week, right? Our nation, and I say all that to say this, that our nation is in desperate need of another way to relate. Because we're quickly getting to a point where people can't disagree any, any longer. Now listen, I don't have all the answers by, by far. Um, especially in the political arena, in the atmosphere of these culture wars that we've got going on. But I do know there's another way. I do know there's another way that people can relate. And that is spelled out right here in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's speak, uh, I mean, let's, uh, let's read verses 1 through 7 again. Paul says, now watch what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned and I don't have love, I'm nothing. Now, Chuck did a, a, a great job last week of explaining that. Okay? But I want, you to, I want to look at verse number 2 real quickly. And I want you to watch what he says. He says, if I have prophetic powers... In other words, if I know what's going to happen, everybody with me? I can prophesy, I know what's going to happen. If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, in other words, if I know everything, if I know everything, and I'm, by the way, that makes me right. If I know everything, don't you think I'm right? Even if I'm right, and by the way, if I have all faith so I can automatically fix everything, I can say, mountain be moved and it's gone. I can say abortion be gone, homosexuality be gone, transgenderism be gone. If I could do all of that, and Paul says, I don't have love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. See, it's not about that. It's about love. I mean, you just cannot... It's like love is more important to have in the midst of the problems instead of getting rid of the problems. Does that make sense? That it's more important than getting rid of everything and making everything quote-unquote right. It's important to have love. He goes on now and describes what love looks like or love acts like. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. Listen, for the church of Jesus Christ, this is an opportunity for us. Right now, in the midst of a, of a country that's in, a, in this spirit of hatred, we have an opportunity. You see, when everything is going well, and we're all around in a nice circle, holding hands, singing Kumbaya, there's not a whole lot to do, right? But see, when all of a sudden, when you've got all these disagreements, and you've got all this hatred, and all this rancor, there is a time for Christians to stand up and show this is how Christians love. This is an opportunity for us to do this. See, we, we've got an opportunity now to really show somebody that, that this is the badge of Christianity, is its love. 
and people can say, man, that Jesus thing is real. That Jesus, he wasn't just a man. He, he's still alive and he's still putting something into people's hearts and into their, into their lives. We've got an opportunity to show another way to relate besides the hatred, besides the mean-spiritedness, besides the, the, the rancor. Now, I got one more reason why love is so important. And this is, I wanted, you know, I said all the other stuff, which is all obviously important, but this is the one that I really want to sound a warning to the church this morning. And I'm not a prophet, don't, don't claim to be a prophet, but I really see something happening that we have to be very, very, very careful of, okay? And this is the seventh reason. Love overcomes coldness and hate. Now, I want you to look in, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus prophesies. Jesus gives a prophecy um, of something that's going to happen in the end times. Okay, And I want you to watch very carefully because what he says is very, very important. All right? Matthew 24, 9 through 12, Jesus said this. He, again, he's, he's, he's prophesying or he's, he's talking about the end times. And he says this. They will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. Now, what I want you to see there is that they are the people outside the church. Everybody with me? They are the unbelievers. They are the, the, the heathens, the pagans, the unbelievers. They will hate you. Okay? Everybody, anybody understand we're being hated today? There's a lot of hate out there. But now watch what happens. At that time, many will fall away. And they will deliver up one another and what? Hate one another. You see, what I want you to see there is notice there will be hatred from outside the church which results in hatred on the inside of the church. See, the delivering up one another, that's me and you. We start to hate one another. And he goes on and says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. You see, the danger is when hate grows in the world, love starts to get dampened down. Love starts to grow very, very cold. See, I think this is the danger that we face in the world and in the church today. As hate increases, see, it's so easy to pick up that phone and read all that stuff and you see all the hatred and, and instead of fighting back with love, it's almost easy to get caught up in it. Does that make sense? It's really easy to get caught up in everything that's going on instead of saying, no, I will not go there. I will love. See, it's like, it's all, all this hatred is almost like, think of it like a spiritual glacier moving across the world, moving across the country, moving across the, the church. In the classic, how many of y'all here have ever read the screw tape letters? Anybody? Three or four. Okay, if you haven't ever read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you need to read it. It's a book, and the book is about these demons, um, and they're talking amongst one another of how to tempt people, how to keep people from growing in Christ, how to, how to keep people from maturing in Christ. And so you've got these demons that are, uh, uh, obviously it's not real, but they've got these demons that are, that are schooling or, or mentoring these younger demons and telling them, uh, what to do. And here's, here's one example they says. So this is, again, this is an older demon talking to a younger demon. He says this. 
Be sure that the patient, this is the person being tempted, remains completely fixated on politics, arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things that the patient can control. He goes on, Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain toward the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of love or inner peace from further developing. Ensure the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there, that the system is broken, rather than recognizing there's a problem in himself. See, what he's saying is, as long as you keep that Christian focused on them, focused on that, they won't ever look at themselves and realize this is where the problem is. And they'll never advance in love. They'll never advance in peace. They'll never advance in the fruit of the Spirit if they're always focusing out there. It's their problem. They're bad people. They disagree with me. It's always them, them, them. See, what he's saying is when, it's all, when, he can, when the demons can, when the enemy can do that, see, that hatred just creeps over you. And it just dampens you down and your love can't grow and, and, and you, can't grow as a, you can't grow as a Christian. See, this is why I decided to stay one more week on 1 Corinthians 13. Because its message on love is so urgent for America today. And so urgent for River of Life. You see, the fact that Jesus prophesied, by the way, this is going to happen. You understand, Jesus doesn't say it might happen. He said it's going to happen that the hate will sweep over the world and, and the love of many will grow cold. But just because it has to happen to some does not mean it has to happen to me. It does not mean that it has to happen to you. It doesn't, happen, doesn't have to be true for any particular person or any particular church. But if it's not going to be true for you and me, if we're not going to get swept up in this glacier of, of hate and rancor that's sweeping the country, then we need to know what's going on. See, love can survive. In fact, love will survive. But it's only going to survive where people like you and me step up and say, No, I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I put my trust in the Holy Spirit and His power in my life to grow love. Even in the midst where there's, it doesn't look like it should grow. Jesus Christ can grow that love in me. I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to trust in His Word. I'm going to obey and do what it says. You don't have to be one of those whose love grows cold. Now listen, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about politics. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about culture or race relations. In fact, I, I, I saw somewhere, they, somebody thought 1 Corinthians 13 was about marriage because how many marriages have we... I mean, I bet if you've been to a thousand marriages, probably half of them quote 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest of these is love, don't they? But, but 1 Corinthians 13 is not about marriage. It's not about any of those things. In fact... The, the point in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and Paul's point is really very simple. It's very straightforward. It's about the manner in which we are to exercise our spiritual gifts. Now remember, the church at Corinth had gotten things all messed up. They had drawn all sorts of false conclusions about spiritual gifts. Some of them believed that uh, certain spiritual gifts were a sign of maturity. Some of them believed that they thought themselves better or more superior because I've got a better gift. Some of them probably thought that because I've got this gift, God loves me more than He does you. 
I mean, there was all... You had these things that should have been building up the church, and yet they were causing problems in the church, causing division um, in the church. And what was going on? Was it the gifts themselves that were causing the problem? Well, in a way, what was really causing the problem, though, were differences. Differences in people. My gift is better than your gift. God loves me better than He loves you. I'm a better Christian because I've got this gift. It was really differences in people, differences in opinion, differences in thought. And whatever they were, again, these differences were tearing down the church instead of building up the church. And again, why? Because people thought they were right and other people were wrong. People thought they were better than other people because their beliefs were better. Their relationship with God was better. See, anytime we have differences, whether it's differences over theology or difference over culture issues, there's a tendency to divide along those differences. It, it could be, we see it all the time, set the world aside, come inside the church. The church divides all the time on differences. Differences in theology, differences in things we should do, things we shouldn't do, differences in music, differences in... I mean, the list goes on and on. Isn't that what divides a church is differences? Okay? But see, Paul's response to that is quick and to the point. If love for other Christians does not control and shape your behavior, your gift is absolutely worthless. And I can say your belief is worthless, your opinion is worthless if it's not driven by love for one another. That's what Paul is, is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, as I said earlier, Chuck did an excellent job last week of going over this chapter, so I'm, I in no way, shape, or form want to reteach what he did. But I do, as I close here this morning, I want to bring it home and make it very personal. What does this passage mean for me personally? See, we can talk about the world, we can talk about what's going on out there and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, remember, remember what the, the demons were doing in screw tape letters. Keep them focused out there. Keep them focused somewhere else. Don't let them look at themselves. Okay? But I want to bring it home this morning. What does 1 Corinthians 13 mean for, for me? Many years ago, a newspaper in England posed the question to their readers, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, and many of you may not know G.K. Chesterton, but he died in 1936. But he wrote a letter to the editor, and this is what it said. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? See, G.K. Chesterton said, me. Me. I'm a, you, I can't control you. I can't control that. I can't control them. But I got some say over what happens inside of me. And see, that's exactly what we want to do. I, I, every Sunday that we come in here, it's, it's not about theology. It's not about just knowing the Bible. It's about how does this change me? How does this affect me? Because if we, if we can change, this church can change. And if this church can change, this county can change. And, and, that, and it just goes on from, from there. In today's passage, Paul makes it clear that love is not just another gift, is it? In fact, what do we know about love? We know that it's a virtue. It's to characterize and undergird the desire for and the exercise of all spiritual gifts. But what is love? It's not a gift, it's what? It's a fruit, right? Galatians 5, 23 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Love is not a gift. 
It's not something that, that the Spirit just bestows on you like He does the gifts of the Spirit. Now, it, it's empowered by the Spirit. It's created by the Spirit. It's a, it's a work of the Spirit. But here's the question that I've got this morning. If love is a virtue... In fact, by the way, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is a virtue. It's a characteristic of a person that transcends every spiritual gift individually and all of them put together. In other words, it's more important and more valuable and more beneficial to the body of Christ than healings and tongues and prophecy and miracles and all that stuff put together. Does everybody see that? It's more important than all of that stuff. That's how important love is. And it's a virtue, it's a characteristic of a, of a Christian. Let me put it in a slightly different terms. Paul is saying as clearly as he can that character always trumps gifting. That character is always more important than any gift that we may have. The virtues of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit are always to be valued above His gifts. So here's my question. What part can I play in producing this fruit of love in my life? What, what do I need to do? If it's that important, okay, if it's that important, what part can I play to produce love in, in my life? I want to go back to John 12, 24 to 25. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Jesus is very clear in this passage. Dying always precedes fruit bearing. That's true of a seed that falls into the ground, and that's true of you and me. If we want to bear fruit in our life, specifically the fruit of love, there's something in us that needs to die. There's something that needs to die inside of us to precede that, that fruit bearing. Okay. Now, here's, so here's the question I ask myself. How must I die as a father, as a husband, as a, as a Bible study teacher? How, how can I die in order to produce that fruit of love? What needs to die in my life? And how do we as a church need to die in order to produce that fruit of love? Let me give you a couple of examples. In fact, in today's passage, Paul lists 15 descriptions of what love is. And one of the things that jumps out at me is if you take any of those descriptions of what love is, there's a flip side of it that, we're, that shows that something needs to die in our life if we want to produce that. Let me give you a couple of examples. How about this one? Love is patient and it's not irritable. Okay, I picked this one because this is my biggest problem right here. Okay, I picked this one because this is me. You pick your own. See, by nature, I don't know how y'all are, but by nature, I do not like my life to get interrupted. Okay? I don't like to be delayed in my plans. Uh, I, I have a very, and Kathy can tell you this, I have a very strong craving inside of me for a trouble-free life, a drama-free life. I hate anything that gets in the way of things running nice and smoothly. And when it does happen, and she'll tell you, I get irritable, I get cranky, I get smart-mouthed. Is that true, Kathy? Yeah, she's shaking her head, okay? I don't like that. We like everything to kind of flow according to plan. And when it doesn't, see, our nature gets provo it provokes us, does it not? And, and as I said, we get irritable, we get angry. 
And that turns into complaining and grumbling and murmuring and being critical. And I, that's, that, this is me. I'm telling you all this this morning. So what if I'm going to produce in me a love that's patient and a love that's not irritable, something's got to die. You see, what has to die is that part of me that gets cranky, that part of me that wants that trouble-free life. See, my, my, tr- my craving for that trouble-free life has to die. My, my need for an uninterrupted schedule has to die. My demands that, that frustrations and interference get out of my way, that has to die for me to produce a love that is patient. Does that make sense? And see, you can go down those 15 things, and if you pick one of them out, you'll find something that needs to die. Let me give you another one real quickly. Love does not boast, and love is not arrogant. Love's not proud. Love is not look at me. And see, think about this in our nature. There's not a one of us here that doesn't like to be made much of. Okay? We love it when people pat us on the back and tell us how great we are and what a good... That's just human nature, folks. You know, that we love that, right? On the same side, we hate it when people criticize us or make fun of us or try to... We hate that part of it. That, that bothers us to no, to no end. So what we've done in our lives is we've all developed strategies for dealing with this. You start doing it as a kid because you know, man, I like to be... You know, I talk about this all the time. As a kid, you learn very early on, when you make good grades, you get a lot of praise. When you do good, you get patted on the back. And when you do bad, they cut a switch and beat the mess out of you, right? So you're, you learn real quickly, this gets rewarded, this doesn't. Yes or no? Right? See, that's one of the problems we have coming to Christ and coming to God the Father, because He, he doesn't love that way. He loves us differently. Right? He just loves us for who we are. I don't have to earn His love. I don't, I'm not on a performance-based system with God. That's one of the things, and we've talked about that in the past. We won't go there. But as kids, we develop these strategies. And one of the ways that, one of these strategies we develop is to tell people how great we are, just in case you don't know. So we go around, we start, kids, you'll find kids boasting about how great they are. And, and, and some kids, you know, and eventually some kids figure out, look, that don't go over too well either. Right? So we do these other strategies. We don't just come right out and boast, but we do things like, you ever met somebody, they don't really boast, but if you talk to them, they constantly bring the conversation back to them. You ever met anybody like that? They don't really just come out and say, I'm so great, but what they'll do is in the conversation, it's always them. It's always their family. It's always their issues. It's always, it's always them, 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 them. The other thing I've learned about people is some people have even learned to turn their failures into a form of pride. You ever found anybody that's gone through a tragedy or they've gone through some kind of failure and that becomes their identity? You ever met anybody like that? It becomes that's who they are. And every time you meet them, you talk about that thing. It always comes back that they they can't move past it. It becomes their identity. It almost becomes a form of pride with them. You see, in the end, what we find out is both self-pity and boasting are both forms of pride. One takes its pride in its hurts, and the other takes pride in its strengths. But see, at the end of the day, it's always about me. Look at me. Look what I've gone through. Look how, look what I've done. Or It's all about me, me, me. 
But see, Paul says love's not about self at all. Love, love, it doesn't speak much about itself. And here's the thing. It's not puffed up with its achievement, achievements, and love's not overly concerned that it's been hurt. It just moves on, right? See, love is always other-directed, not self-consumed, which means that if we're to love, something in us has to die. If we're going to love the right way, not in a proud way, but in a boastful way, something deep within our fallen nature has to die. That glory-loving, self-exalting, attention-seeking, whining, pouting, self-pitying me has to die to produce that kind of love. One more thing before we close. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. I want to read those verses, and I want to point out one thing. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they're going to stop or cease. As for knowledge, it's going to pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now... We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. See, we've talked about those verses a lot over the last few weeks, and it's really easy to read those verses and get caught up in the debate about when spiritual gifts will end. They, they play a big part in that argument he says prophecies will end, knowledge will end, tongues will end. And so you get called up, well, when will they end? And, it, and it's this big argument. But if you're not careful, you'll miss something there. The whole, you'll miss the side of the fact that the whole reason Paul even brings that up is to say that love never ends. That's the real point of that passage. Is there some things are going to end, but love, it never ends. You see, spiritual gifts, even when they operate at their highest level, if we were using spiritual gifts in this church and, 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 and boy, everybody loved one another and we were, all, we were just operating in perfect spiritual gifts, at the end of the day, it's still partial. It's still looking through a mirror dimly. They're only temporary things to get us to the point when we see Jesus. But look what he says, love never ends. Everything else is going to fall by the wayside. Which means, but a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, a million years from now, love is still going to be here. Love is still going to be here. The things that I'm practicing today in love, I'm going to carry them with me and grow in them. You know, I can step over that line into eternity and I'm going to bring that love with me. And it'll just continue to grow and continue to mature throughout the, the years. Philippians 1.9 says this, I pray, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that love is not an all-or-nothing thing. It can grow. In fact, it should grow as we mature in Christ. And let me tell you, no man or woman on their deathbed, I, I just can't believe, is going to lay on their deathbed and say, man, I should have prophesied more. I should have spoken tongues more. But I can tell you, I, I can guarantee you there's a lot of people lay on their deathbed and say, I should have loved more. You see, you can no more take those gifts with you into eternity than you can take your money and your possessions. You're not going to take any of that with you. Okay? But love, it goes right with you. The things that you've learned in love, learned how to love, the things that, that you've done in love, they all get carried into eternity. It's eternal. So here's my word to us this morning. Let's make love 
the preeminent focus of all that we do. Let's practice it, let's grow in it, and let's abide in it. Let's pray.